we're definitely emphasizing our focus on the appearance, um, the, the humanity of the experience and increasing supply. Uh, in the markets that we typically find ourselves in, there's not a need to compete on cutting edge technology. Um, none of our competitors have it. And it's very much a nice to have feature that won't be driving the same level of rent growth that some of the other focuses will have just because there's no expectation in the marketplace for those. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Before we begin this week's show, I'd like to make you an offer, a free 30-minute call with me. We've been doing weekly chats with other real estate investors for months now, and the response has been great. But we're going to change things up a bit and focus. We are buying self-storage facilities. We have a great partner in North Carolina with a great track record of success, a background in construction, and we're partnering up to help him expand his portfolio. If you have an interest in learning more about investing in self-storage, on the active side, on the passive side, whatever your level of interest, we want to talk to you. There's no pitch here. We're not selling a coaching program. This is just a chance for us to network with other investors interested in self-storage. Also, if you're a current self-storage owner, we'd love to chat with you and perhaps have you as a guest on our show. If all that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash self-storage call and schedule a call there. I look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil. You're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week is the father of two young girls, a husband, a father, a full-time real estate investor, the director of acquisitions at Spartan Investment Group, the founder and best ever master of ceremonies of the best ever real estate investing conference. Ben Lapidus, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me. And I should say co-founder with Joe Fairless for the best I ever. know. Yeah, that guy, he gets way too much publicity. <laughs> so I'm okay. <laughs> So, yes, you are, you are the co-founder. So, uh, so right after college, you started a successful study abroad company in Costa Rica. Uh, and after selling that company, you moved to New York City and worked in an ad tech startup and then decided, I'm going to buy real estate. What Can you walk us through how you first decided to start investing in real estate? Yeah, sure. So um, it was something that was pointed to me, not something that I fell into or sought out on my on my own. My folks decided they wanted to retire eight years before they were ready. So they bought a retirement home in Richmond, Virginia, uh, eight years before they ended up moving there. So then they rented it out. They were flabbergasted at this amazing investment that they had stumbled into because they didn't purchase it to be an investment. And I was like, wow, you guys are really excited about this. So I looked at their numbers as I was getting my finance degree. I said, guys, you're getting a 2% cash on cash return. So I, <laughs> I, I definitely um, I got in their cookies about it. And they're like, well, if you think you can do it better, then, then, then you go ahead and do it because we want to get another one because we like it so much. So they ended up getting uh, five more um, in the process in Richmond, Virginia, each one, I got a little bit more involved. Each one had better return metrics, uh, along the way. Um, and that's right around when I sold my business and I all of a sudden had a, a big chunk of change at the age of 23, 
So I decided to just kind of rinse, wash, repeat on the last six properties that my family had purchased. Um, that was 2012, 2013 timeframe. Uh, and so property investing was abundant in a single family space back then. Gotcha. Uh, and what uh, were these, you know, little uh, three bedroom, two bath, you know, what sort of price point were you looking at at the time? Yeah, so the model was four bed, two bath in uh, a nice neighborhood that was um, uh, kind of kind of a desirable place to be for folks who were coming coming out of the two or three bedroom apartment scene, saying, "I finally want to have my own home. I've got kids. I don't want to be in an apartment anymore. I'm a responsible adult. I you know, work at um, the Nestle office around the corner or or whatever, um, and kind of we're, we're we're ready for that forty fifty thousand dollar household income minimum." Uh, so we were targeting 1200 plus in rents, four bedroom, two bath. And the first house that I purchased was $83,000. It required about $20,000 of uh, improvement investment, 20 to 25,000. So I was into it for 110,000 with closing costs and I was generating uh, 12, 25 in rent. Gotcha. Uh, and was so that, that um, did you, did you burr it or was that basically just more of a traditional, was it, or was it rent ready? Well, it's clearly not rent, rent ready when you bought it. Yeah, it wasn't rent ready when we bought it, uh, but <clears throat> did not burr it, just went the very traditional route. Um, got a, uh, I think I was, I was targeting a 13 or 14% cash on cash return with a 15 year mortgage. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, just a standard investment process. And this was, uh, again, 2012. Yeah. Gotcha. When, when deals like that were abundant. Yep. <laughs> uh, so you came to the table, how much money did you think you came to the table with? Uh, on those first two properties, close to a hundred grand. Um, and that's when I, I started working for the ad tech industry up in New York city. First company I worked for went public six months after I joined and had made a lot of people who thought I was decently smart for my age, a lot of money. Uh, real fast, not enough money to say I'm going to go start investing in New York City where efficiency units were three quarters of a million dollars, but enough money where they could spare $50,000 to trial something out without it burning in Richmond, Virginia for a four bed, two bath house. They liked the idea of that. So without me having to look for it, people started approaching me and say, hey, you know, can, we, can we invest together? I said, sure. So I bought another dozen properties um, and used all of their money, all of their credit and kept 25%. Okay, so you you basically you found the deal, uh, you managed the uh, the rehab if there was any the, the whole purchase process, and then they basically, you know, they brought their their credit uh, and their down payment, and, and for that you took twenty five percent of the equity and cash flow. That's exactly right. Okay, um, so. Um, Talk about talk to us about how that evolved. I mean, when you started off, it was very you know it's very friends and family. Um, you know, you started talking to to uh, people you're working with about, hey, here's what I'm doing in real estate, and people start coming to you and going, hey, man, that actually sounds pretty cool. Let me give you some money, and and you go do it. <laughs> Is that basically how it happened? Pretty pretty much. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't as direct. I was a bit more mysterious than that. I would kind of tell my immediate team members. Um, somehow it would work its way through the grapevine, and then those folks would approach me, and, it's, and I would be not standoffish about it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give away more information than what was asked. I would make them ask me more questions, get invested into what I was doing. Um, one, because I just thought that was a more appropriate office culture, not even trying to syndicate cash. Uh, and two, because it, like once I realized that that worked, that was just a, a good strategy. 
Um, it, and there was one instance where I, I was looking for cash when I did buy my first multifamily. Um, and the age old wisdom of, or the age old uh, statement, I guess, adage of when you are looking for money, ask for wisdom. When you're looking for wisdom, ask for money. So my boss's boss, I did go to him seeking wisdom. And that's how I got my first uh, investor in my first apartment building <laughs> uh, because I was looking for wisdom and he gave me money. Um, but yeah, usually they were coming to me because they had heard about it from somebody else and, and they would pick my brain about what I was doing. Uh, when they heard enough, they said, you know, could you do this for me? And I said, sure. Um, I wasn't looking for it in hindsight. I wouldn't do it again, uh, because the returns are so small to me. I mean, at 25% after you're paying for a mortgage on a single family property, that's only generating 1200, 13, $1,400 in rent. I'm earning $100 a month per property. Yeah. Now, one might say that I don't have to do very much, and that's definitely true, but the mental load of that, now where I am, worth $100 a month um, for, for what I'm doing, the mental load of having to carry that. So if I could offload the entire portfolio, uh, that would be a good return on my mental load. But at the time, it was a fantastic way to build up my balance sheet, build up a little bit of cash flow, build up the experience, so that when I did start doing real things on my own or um, in a more kind of appropriate syndication mechanism, it looked like I had all of this experience and credit and balance sheet because I did. Yeah. You know, it, it's such an important, what you just said is so important, you know, because there's a reason that people don't syndicate single family homes uh, yeah. as, a, as a general rule. I mean, there's big conglomerates that package massive portfolios into a syndication, but, you know, individual deals, you know, every investor that you bring on is a customer service job that you're yeah. going to have through the life of the deal. Even, and even if it's a, a relatively low, uh, low workload for you, there's still, you're still dealing with someone's money. Uh, and there's still right. that, you know, it, it, you know, every, every person you bring on is a little bit harder to sleep at night because you've got to, you know, you're taking care of their money. Right. Right. And if, and if you look at what is the return on time of a hundred dollars a month, I should probably be spending 15, 20, 30 minutes per month per property. And I definitely spend more than that. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, Talk to us that first deal that you quote unquote syndicated. Uh, and I'm assuming the statute of limitations have sort of has passed on that. You know, it was a mid-sized multifamily. Uh, can you give well, us the details of that deal? I mean, did it go well? You know, what were your chief lessons learned? Yeah, so so a couple of things on, on that little uh, caveat that, that you plugged in there. So number one, it, I, I would syndicate one property with one investor. So we were very much partners on paper. Gotcha. Uh, and according to Section 4 Alpha, the SEC code, you know, that is completely okay. Um, it's this little one-sentence, two-line part of the code that says, if it's under five people, you know who they are. We don't really care. Do whatever you want. Gotcha. Um, and that's kind of where I fell in. So how did that come about? Um, I was asking for insight on a multifamily property that I was investigating um, to a boss's boss uh, uh, who was becoming a friend. He was an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur. There weren't too many other entrepreneurs in our extended team. And so we connected on that um, and told him what I was up to. Even though I worked for him, he was very much my champion, my cheerleader. We're still friends today, 10 years later. Um, and so not only did he say, hey, I'll, I'll give you some cash for this apartment building, but also here's 125 grand. How many houses can you buy? I said, oh, okay. Um, but you need to put a 10%. So on those three, I put up 10% myself. 
uh, and I went and I bought three houses with uh, the $137,000 or whatever it ended up being. Gotcha. Um, and did it, did that, did that go well? I mean, was it, was it something that you, you know, you felt you guys felt good about as time went on? Oh yeah. Yeah. Those, uh, those houses are cash flowing like crazy on 15 year mortgages. So, you know, nine, eight, nine years from now, uh, they're going to be completely paid off generating, I don't know, close to probably over $3,000 a month. Um, so $36,000 a year. Uh, in cash flow on a hundred and forty thousand dollar investment, let's say. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once once they're paid off, and for now, I mean, they're they're generating probably that per quarter. Okay. Gotcha. Four thousand per quarter. Gotcha. And is that on most of your single family uh, rental purchases? Did you structure it with a fifteen year mortgage? I did until I got squeezed. Um, so you know, the, the the cycle continued. People caught on. Prices went up. Um, so I started making them work with 30 year mortgages to try and get the same targeted cash on cash return. And eventually I couldn't even make them work with 30 year mortgages. Yeah. So 2016, I think was the last time I purchased a house. Uh, but yeah, but m most of them were structured, uh, with 15 year mortgages. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so now you're the director of acquisitions for Spartan investment group. What is the focus? What is Spartan's focus right now? Yeah, so Spartan focuses, uh, it, we're a development and syndication company that focuses on self-storage assets and other opportunistic uh, business dealings. Uh, so we are on the value-add to opportunistic range of the risk-return curve. When it comes to self-storage assets, we're looking for facilities that we can put a little bit of elbow grease into to ensure uh, a high enough minimum value spread. By that, I mean we're specifically looking for 30% upside, not including cash flow, just 30% uh, minimum between our investments and our sale price. Uh, and that's because um, we want to protect ourselves from any significant downturns uh, that would be similar to 2008. Not that we expect that to ever occur again, or that storage didn't actually perform very well in the 2008 recession. It, it actually performed very well at that point, but we're just trying to be overly conservative. And we know that if any correction does occur, 30% value spread would be a very good protection cushion. Um, and so that's not typical. Getting 30% over a five-year hold can't really be achieved in this market just by depending on market rent growths. So we look for ways to reposition assets to expand the footprint of the building and increase uh, the cash flow um, to break up packages or put uh, packages of properties together. Uh, whatever that we can do to kind of add elbow grease, add our two cents into a, an operating model to generate uh, an above average value spread. Gotcha. Now, when you say value spread, you're, you're, you're talking about the, you know, it's commercial assets. So if you increase the, the NOI, you're, you're increasing the value from, let's say, a million dollars, you're increasing it to at least 1.3. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, it, it increasing the NOI relative to the total investment. So we, we look at total project costs as opposed to purchase price because such a large percentage of our uses and our sources and uses table doesn't come from the purchase price. You know, we might buy a $5 million asset and then put $2 million into it, uh, plus a million dollars of soft costs. And now we're at $8 million. Um, so only 60% of the asset is the purchase price. So when we're looking at NOI growth, it's got to be relative to the total project cost. But yes, Gotcha. And are, are you looking in, uh, you know, class A markets, you look in tertiary markets, you know, what kind of markets are you looking in? 
Yeah, so we'll look at all the way from primary to tertiary, but we really do focus on secondary. We have one asset in a primary market that is being uh, bombarded by uh, reach level competition. Um, and, you know, that, that asset that is going to perform very well, but it's just a, a much more difficult um, dealing to uh, you know, achieve the success that we want to achieve with it. So we're going to get there. It's just a lot more effort than we anticipated. So we find that when we buy the best asset in the market and there's no read level competition that we just kind of screen through our business plan. And that's, uh, that's what we want to do. We want to get, uh, to our maximum economic performance relative to our business plan, relative to the investment that we're making as quickly as possible, because that's when we can generate the liquidity from that increased equity and give our investors the best possible IRR. Best, pass, gotcha. best possible return on investment in the shortest period of time. So gotcha. yeah, we focus on secondary markets. Uh, and just to answer your question a little bit differently, um, we have 33 uh, states that we focus on, 154 markets across 33 states, and that's based off of job growth, population growth, income growth, uh, rent minimums for self-storage, and overall market occupancy. Gotcha. Uh, what sort of rent minimums are you guys typically targeting? 10 uh, $10 a square foot per year. Um, and, and again, that's just because of the cost of construction, because most of our, our dealings have some level of expansion to them. Not all of our deals have a $10 uh, minimum. If we can do an operational play or repositioning play, um, the minimum is less important. Uh, but because we find that expansion is a lot more uh, accessible to us when we, when we are looking for deals, we're looking for $10 minimums because the cost of construction has a minimum and $10 is kind of that threshold where uh, return on investment is uh, it needs to hit. Gotcha. And and what sort of when you talk about operational repositioning, what sort of what sort of things are you guys typically uh, work looking to do? Yeah. So we we've got a couple of assets like this where we're taking a C grade facility, C minus in some cases, and we want to make it a solid B, maybe a B plus. So we want, we'll put a million dollars into the facility, and that has nothing to do with expanding it. That's just roof, metal, drive aisles, office renovation, gate, fence, security, those kinds of things. Um, because now instead of it being the, um, the only thing that it has to offer is cheap rent, now we can offer slightly less cheap rent, but still cheap rent with higher quality amenities and a much better customer experience. Um, and I think folks really undervalue in the self-storage space, at least in the hustler self-storage space, not, not in the REIT level, but in the hustler self-storage space, uh, folks really undervalue the um, uh, folks on payroll. So training, good customer service produces a good experience, which increases your stickiness uh, of your customers and the longevity of them, reduces delinquencies, creates an emotional relationship between the business and the customer. Uh, and that can only be achieved via quality on-site management. Certainly cannot be achieved at all if you separate uh, the facility from any type of management, any type of human capital whatsoever. Gotcha. So well, you know, sometimes it's about retraining and, and restaffing a facility. Yeah. And it's something that people need to keep in mind when they're looking at self-storage is that, that it is, it is as much a business <laughs> and it, it, I would even say even more a business than it is a real estate asset. And, yeah. you know, if you, if you just treat it like a real estate asset, it's, it, it's, you're going to run it into the ground pretty quickly. Um, That's right. Uh, are you guys uh, employing any sort of uh, automation? I mean, that's one of the things that's really taking taking self storage by storm is a lot of these. Uh, you know, you've got no key from um, uh, 
the Noki system, you know, you've got new, you know, new way kiosks and things like that. Are you guys installing things like that? Or are you just focusing on the human operations and management side? Um, we, we're definitely emphasizing our focus on the appearance, um, the, the humanity of the experience and increasing supply. Uh, in the markets that we typically find ourselves in, there's not a need to compete on cutting edge technology. Um, none of our competitors have it. And it's very much a nice to have feature that won't be driving the same level of rent growth that some of the other focuses will have just because there's no expectation in the marketplace for those. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So I, I think the cutting edge technology is going to speak to the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation, which is very urban, very core assets. Uh, where we are, we're in suburban, rural, maybe county seats outside of major metropolitan areas where you've got um, you know, Gen X and, and boomer populations that are the bread and butter of your customer base. And there's just not that expectation there to drive rent growth. Gotcha. The millennials don't want to talk to me. They don't want to touch anything. They just want it. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so you're, you're primarily buying existing facilities that you can, you know, you can uh, improve operations on the, on the human side, clean up the facility, make it nicer, and then also expand it, which is one of the things I, I love about self-storage. You know, it's not the typical sort of value add that you get with, uh, with apartment buildings, things like that. Um, but you also, you also have built from the ground up and I know I've been following you guys for years and I know that this project has been, uh, you've been working on this for a while and it was one in, uh, and I can't remember the exact locale, but I know it was in Washington state and I believe you guys broke ground, uh, like recently, correct? Yes. Yep. Broke ground in black diamond, Washington last week, actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that was what were like, what was the. What was the holdup on that? I think it was some some there was some environmental issues, zoning. I mean, what what was what was what held that deal up? Oh, so many things. Um, if Ryan were here, he could give you the the complete lay of the land. Uh, Ryan embodies one of our values, tenacity, and he's been beating his head against the wall working with a, a smorgasbord of different government entities to get these entitlements done, and and he did uh, years of it. Um, but yes, wetlands was uh, one of the biggest things. So Washington State cares very much about their wetlands, as they should. Um, and we had a lot of changes um, that were made to the plans as we learned about what this town that only has folks working in their municipality two days a week and haven't had precedent for any of these conversations before, were looking for. So every week it would seem like what they were looking for changed because they had never done it before. And what yeah. the solutions might be changed because they had never done it before. And then once they finally agreed to something, we had to take the same information and provide it to the Army Corps of Engineers during a government shutdown, if you remember that from however long ago that was. Oh, yeah. Um, so the Army Corps of Engineers took over a year to give us an approval. Uh, and that was, you know, we, we had to engage um, local politicians <laughs> to assist us, both, both at the local municipality level and with the Army Corps of Engineers. So uh, a lot of creativity, a lot of um, relationship building, and a lot of flexibility uh, and adaptability from our end to get that done. And there was a lot more issues than that that we had to work through, but I think the long pole in the tent was definitely the wetlands. Yeah, you know, it, it, um, 
it speaks to you know the, the benefit of of going with an existing facility and and some place that's already zoned for for storage. I mean, you guys are. Uh, I I applaud you for you know going down the development route. It's one of the reasons I will. I don't think I will ever go down the development route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's difficult, and and I've I've heard lots of stories of. Um, of folks who are billionaires who say self-made billionaires say the only reason I'm a billionaire is because I stayed away from development. And I've seen folks who have uh, hundreds of millions of net worth and they say, I would have been a billionaire if I wasn't in development, but I just love it so much. So yeah, development definitely has uh, a lot more risk that can't be mitigated or transferred uh, or internalized in a way that um, always works out in your favor. Uh, but it, it does have much higher margins when it works. I mean, for example, in Black Diamond, Washington, we bought that land for $550,000. Yes, we dumped a million dollars into getting it entitled, but now we have a comp that shows that it's worth $4.1 million. So before we even broke ground, we had doubled our money on that project. Oh, that's great. That's great. And when do you anticipate that it will be open? We hope to have uh, something open this fall, not the entire facility, but at least one building. Gotcha. And so you're going to build in stages? Yes. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So what is your specific role at Spartan? Yeah. So as the director of finance and acquisitions, I'm driving uh, all of our corporate finance and all of our investment finance. Um, So by that, I mean uh, the entire back end of our uh, corporate infrastructure, bookkeeping, accounting, taxes um, is all under my purview, financial planning and analysis. And then on the investment finance side, I am positing our investment theory uh, to our executive team, and we're working together to build um, kind of on a quarter by quarter basis where we should be focused um, and uh, looking for new opportunities. Um, I manage the team that is out there doing business development, communicating with sellers, communicating with brokers, and driving the underwriting files and the market analysis that turns into offers um, and deal reviews internally. Gotcha. Um, so are you, uh, you know, a lot of what you're, a lot of what you're doing is probably market, you know, market analysis, digging into, you know, which, you know, what little market, because self-storage is so, so localized. I mean, you've got three file, you know, you got the, the trade area, you know, what I guess is the, the technical term for it. Is that what you're, what you're doing is digging into those little trade areas? I'm not per se, but yeah, um, when, when we're driving, uh, when we're looking at new opportunities, that is one of the first things that we do. We call it a sniff test. So we don't do a full-blown feasibility study right out of the gate, but we do a sniff of the 5, 10, 15-minute drive times radii around a, a particular yep. location that we're looking at. Um, and we're, we're looking to see, is the supply to population ratio completely out of whack? Um, and I, I know a lot of folks focus on, in self-storage, focus on that seven square feet per capita benchmark, now five and a half uh, square feet per capita, recently updated by Poppy Barons. Um, that kind of kills all deals. Uh, sometimes, most of the time, in a way that doesn't seem uh, necessary. So we, we do a couple of things. Number one, we don't just look at that uh, saturation number. We look at occupancy. So we pick up the phone, we collect primary data, we find out, Uh, how occupied our closest competitors are. If you've got 99% occupancy, but you've got 12 square feet per capita, do you not want to take a look at if this place needs more supply? Um, So I I think that seven square feet per capita is a bit um, overused. It's a bit dogmatic. Um, So what we do instead when we're looking at the saturation numbers is we'll look at 
the seven square feet per capita, but we'll also look at the state level benchmark. Then we'll look at the CBSA level benchmark. And then the most important thing is we take uh, the saturation from some of the neighboring municipalities that are of similar size and similar geographic location uh, because they've got similar weather patterns and similar cultural styles uh, that would drive storage demand. And we use uh, kind of an amalgamation of those local municipalities uh, and their saturation data come up with an average and that will be our benchmark. So you might have seven square feet per capita, nine in the state of Texas, 11 in the CBSA, but all of your municipalities average out to 12.2 and your saturation of your subject site is 11.9. Again, seven, that doesn't look very good, but when coupled with a 99% market occupancy and a benchmark of 12.1 in the immediate area, you've got a much more attractive story on the market. Yeah. Well, and it, it, people very often just get locked in on that, you know, 7.5%, you know, 7.5 square feet, you know, per capita, whatever it is. But like you said, there are communities where, you know, they just have people who lot of, like to store a lot of stuff. I mean, there's, there's, you know, people who there's smaller garages, there's more people in apartment buildings or more people in um, uh, mobile home parks and things like that. It, you really need to dig into the market and find out what's, what is the occupancy? I mean, because if it's, you know, like you said, if it's 11, 11 square feet uh, per capita, but they're 100% occupied across the market, something's there. There's, there's some demand there that's being unmet. Right, right. I, I, I like to compare it to uh, Wi-Fi bandwidth. If you look at Wi-Fi bandwidth in my neighborhood, the average bandwidth is 250 megabytes per second. But if you look at the average bandwidth across the U.S., well, there is still 3 4% of the U.S. population that doesn't have access to, to Wi-Fi. So if you average them into there, of course, your, your averages are going to be lower. And it's the same thing in storage. Rural communities, they've got a lot of barn space. They've got a lot of basement space. It's just not part of the culture to take your stuff to a self-storage facility because you got a lot of land, you got a lot of sheds, um, and there's just nobody to service them within a 20-minute drive time. So when you include those populations in your statistics, you're skewing it away from your subject intersection as a benchmark. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I mean, we've talked a lot about all the different things that you like about self-storage, but if I had to you know, ask you, all right, what are the top th three things that you like about self-storage as an investment, what would that be? Sure. So I think it comes down to our Spartans evaluation criteria. We didn't just choose self-storage out of a hat. We went through a strategic planning process to determine what our asset focus should be back in 2016. Um, and we landed on self-storage because it meant all three of our evaluation criteria. Easy to manage, easy to maintain, easy to monetize. And I'll just run you through those. Easy to manage, meaning that one person can, one on-site manager could accommodate 200, 300 customers. Uh, which is a much better ratio than, say, multifamily. There's no tenants to, to, who live in your facility. There's no toilets to fix other than maybe the one office toilet. It's just a completely low-key, low-management-style investment. On the maintenance side, you typically don't have very much below-the-ground risk. In multifamily, you've got pipes and electrical wires running below the ground. Um, you know, below the building, you've got uh, cast-iron piping and sewerage. With self-storage, you don't have very much below the ground risk. All of your repairs and maintenance are typically above your footers. It's gonna be your drive aisles, your metal and your roofs. Um, uh, and if you've got climate control, maybe your HVAC. Uh, and then number three is easy to monetize. In multifamily, you've got uh, a lot of tenant laws that um, aren't necessarily in the landlord's favor or couldn't, you know, could be more in the landlord's favor. Uh, with self-storage, it varies state by state, just like with uh, residential assets. But A, there's not a moral and ethical dilemma with it. 
you know, grandma's stuff is not as important as the home and livelihood of a family living somewhere. And B, there's not as many laws um, kind of dictating what you're allowed to do to be able to monetize your real estate, your space. So if somebody doesn't pay, you give them notice, you put their stuff up for auction, you could have that um, you know, new unit leased out within 30 days for when you give notice. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it's the same reason I, I, I sort of stay away from um, investing directly in assisted living facilities. I mean, I, I think it's a great asset class and, and probably has uh, some great long-term demographics in its favor, but I don't want to be in charge of someone's grandma. <laughs> Sure. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so self-storage has been a really hot asset class over the last five years or so, maybe not, not as hot as multifamily. Uh, what do you see as the primary hurdles to acquiring properties that can produce uh, a decent risk adjusted return for your investors? Yeah, I, I think uh, supply growth. So more self-storage has been built in the last five years and the previous 30 years combined. Uh, and that has driven a lot of new supply without the accommodating amount of demand, not immediately. And that, that always happens at this stage of the, of the real estate cycle. Development outpaces demand uh, in the last year or two. <clears throat> so we saw the peak demand come online Q2, Q3 of, uh, uh, excuse me, Q2 of 2019. Uh, so it has come down a little bit since then, but demand still hasn't caught up. So in 2018, 2019, we were seeing on average um, negative rent growth. So, you know, you've got companies out there that are underwriting um, three, four, five, six percent rent growth when the market reality is showing negative rent growth. Now, there's a difference between the market in aggregate versus professionally managed stuff. All of the REITs were averaging 4% three years ago, 3% rent growth two years ago, and just over 2% um, you know, year to date. Uh, or last year, rather. So you know, professionally managed assets still have substantial rent growth, but on the whole, there is negative rent growth. There has been historically negative rent growth over the last 24 months or so. Um, and so I think there's some overly aggressive underwriting that are driving prices higher than they should be in the investment marketplace, um, which creates a barrier to entry for us as an investors. And it also creates a, a much more rigorous a requirement to be much more rigorous on our feasibility and our underwriting to make sure that we've got an asset that's not going to uh, underperform relative to our targets. Um, you know, it's not like 2012, 2013, where you could pretty much buy anything without doing any analysis and you were going to ride the wave no matter what, as long as you weren't completely, completely off your rocker and how you managed, you know, yeah. you know, shooting your guns up in the air and saying, all my customers get out. That's the only way I could see you having <laughs> lost uh, any business from 2012 onward. But over the last couple of years, it certainly got more competitive. Um, so we do all of our underwriting with less than 1% rent growth assumptions by default. We have to make a good uh, story, tell a good story and feel convinced internally, have good data to support that we could achieve more than 1% rent growth over the next five years per year. And typically, we don't even start our rent growth assumptions until year three. So we basically have a flat market rent, and then we peter it up 1% every year. So after a five-year period, we're looking at 3.5% rent growth over the entire five years. Compare that to some of our multifamily colleagues and counterparts that are assuming 4% per year over a five-year period. You know, they're achieving 23 24% rent growth in the market compared to our piddly three and a half, four percent rent growth in the market. Um, most of that comes down to underwriting, us just being a bit more conservative, but that really shines a light on why we have to look for such um, 
a large amount of value add potential to get to that 30% value spread because we're only depending on the market for three, four or 5% of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the, one of the primary risks is obviously supply growth. How are you guys uh, vetting uh, an asset to try and mitigate that risk? Yeah, so we've got access to great data. Radius uh, is a platform that shows you not only all of the existing supply in the immediate area, but also all of the pipeline supply. And it'll tell you what stage it's at, if it's in planning and permitting, or if it's under construction. So something's under construction, you should be able to drive out there and see it. If something's in planning and permitting, you call the county, the municipality, the authority having jurisdiction, and you inquire about it, see what stage it's at, see if it's been two years since they filed their last pre-app or whatever, um, because it might have just stalled and it's never going to come about, but it's just lingering out there in the data sphere. Uh, And then once you've looked through all that data, you still call that authority and say, anecdotally, has anybody come by and submitted a pre-app? talking about self-storage because that data is not going to show up in the platforms because nothing's been filed uh, with any uh, office at that jurisdiction. But some of the planners might be aware of some of the anecdotal um, pipeline potential that's coming out. Of course, you know, in some of the secondary markets that we see, we can, we can look at when facilities have come online, how many came online in 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016. And if nothing's come online in the last five years and there's no pipeline coming, there's a pretty good chance that there's no immediate pipeline coming. Um, and so if we're buying facilities for under replacement cost and we have no pipeline data to suggest that there's going to be more competition, that's a really good place to be to go after an expansion because nobody's added supply for the last however many years. It doesn't look like anybody else is going to um, add supply. And we just bought under replacement cost. So we should be competitive in the marketplace from a pricing standpoint on our existing supply, which should be balanced out by any new supply that we create at market price. Gotcha. That was a long-winded answer. No, no, it was great. It's fantastic. And I totally agree. If, you know, if you're anybody who's getting into self-storage, uh, check out Radius Plus. Um, it, it, it will be your friend. And it's really uh, amazingly, amazingly reasonable, uh, given, given the amount of data they give you. So, uh, well, Ben, so you're, you're the co-founder uh, with that guy, Joe Fairless, of the Best Ever Real Estate Conference. Uh, that is still planned for, I, I hope, for February of uh, 2021. Um, anything new going on there that you're willing to share? Sure, absolutely. Yep, we are going to be. We haven't we haven't told our attendees from last year yet. That's going to be coming out. I uh, hope this week, maybe next week. Um, we got the message from last year that that Keystone, Colorado, being up in the mountains, wasn't as desirable of a place to be as maybe an alternative location. So we are booked for February 18th to 20, February, uh, excuse me, of 2021 at the Gaylord Rockies, about a three minute drive from the airport. Uh, So we are changing our venue. Once again, we are gonna be adding a virtual track. Uh, There is going to be content that is only available to the folks who are there virtually. There's gonna be content that is only available to folks where they're physically. So there's gonna be a value add no matter what. And the virtual experience will be as high quality as the physical experience. Uh, So we are not going to be skimping on costs for the virtual experience or on um, making sure that it is as high quality as the physical one. Well, I can't wait. I hope that uh, the world returns uh, to normal enough that it will be as uh, wonderfully attended as it was this last uh, February. So uh, I can't wait. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, Ben, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If uh, if any of our listeners want to learn more about you, what would be the best way they could reach out to you? 
Yeah, sure. You can check out uh, BEC2021.com to learn more about the best ever conference, the only commercial real estate investing conference that uh, is an industry trade event, not a how-to event, uh, based on the express needs of what our audience wants to hear. You can reach out to me at ben at spartan-investors.com. Gotcha. And we'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well. So thanks again, Ben. Thank you, Neil, for having me. Nice talking with you. Absolutely. Okay. That was Ben Lapidus from Spartan Investment Group and the best ever real estate conference. If you have never been to the best ever conference, I highly, highly recommend that you uh, put that on your calendar. It'll be in, if all things go according to plan, it'll be in February of 2021. Uh, go to BEC2021.com. Uh, for more details on that, highly recommend it. Uh, at some point, we also may be able to offer uh, a little bit of a uh, an affiliate link uh, when they make that available. Um, like I said, highly recommend it. Um, as far as the post, uh, you know, our analysis of of uh, Ben's strategy, you know, the key lesson learned for me it's that self storage, uh, the success or failure of self storage is dependent on supply and demand. Uh, more than a lot of uh, other asset classes. I mean, it's not a, um, it very much is a nice to have, not a, a need to have. You know, most people, they need a roof over their head. Uh, they don't necessarily need self-storage uh, unless there's, you know, some transition in their life. Um, so it, and it's very localized. It's very dependent on what's going on and, and the kinds of lifestyle that the people in it, in the hyper localized trade area, you know, that three, five, 10 mile zone, um, how they uh, consume self storage. And, and so that, that's really where you need to dig down into and find out, you know, uh, you don't, don't just go off of the, there's a real industry standard of 7.5, you know, square feet per person, you know, per capita in a market is, you know, sort of a market equilibrium. Well, and that's very sort of all across the nation. And there's certain markets that are going to be, they're going to, they can take more than that. And there's some that it can take less. Um, so you really want to dig down into what's the occupancy, like really what are uh, the facilities in the area that you're looking to, to purchase? Um, you know, what are their occupancies? And that, that will really tell you what the demand is, not the square foot per capita. Um, as far as the key piece of knowledge that he acquired to make him successful, I would say he started small uh, with friends and family and learned to, um, you know, uh, deploy other people's money to, uh, to buy real estate. Uh, and that's really, uh, an important skill to learn if you're going to scale. Uh, and, and I think it's important that people not try not to do it too quickly. There's a lot of people out there uh, pitching programs on, you know, you know, use other people's money. And, you know, well, you've got to remember that you're, when you take someone else's money, you are taking their life force. You're taking the, the time that they spent doing something other than the things that they really wanted to do, the time that they, you know, uh, spent with their family um, and traded that time for money. And then they're, they're trusting you with that life force to help it grow uh, and, and more importantly, not lose it. Um, so it's important to learn to do that and learn to do it in a small, uh, in, in the shallow end of the pool, not the deep end with the sharks, if that makes sense. 
how much money did it take him to get started? Uh, he started with about a hundred thousand um, dollars from the sale of his uh, his company, and that that actually allowed him to buy. He said two uh, two single family homes. How much time does he spend on his real estate endeavors now? I know for a fact that Ben uh, Ben works very hard. Uh, it's a full time it's a full time job uh, for Ben. And um, could he do this strategy from any the, anywhere in the world? Uh, I would say right now, no. I mean, he is, he's in tight with Spartan Investment uh, Group. And um, I mean, he works, I know he works virtually um, a lot for them. Um, but I mean, it is very much a, um, it's a day job for Ben. But uh, so once again, that was Ben Lapidus from Spartan Investment Group. Uh, check him out. We're doing this all again next week. Uh, sorry that things have been a little bit um, inconsistent lately. We are in the middle of uh, moving out of our house. We sold our house in Las Vegas, which we will discuss on an upcoming show. And uh, hope you all are well. Let's hit the road. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.